That was um, Paris McCartney who sang, that was sang the lead on that song a few minutes ago. Uh, Paris, if you don't know her, is a, has been a student at Berkeley School of Music and has uh, latched on with us here over the last year. She's moving back to the Pacific Northwest right after Easter, so I don't know if she gets to sing again, but I thought that uh, we'd give her a little shout out just to thank her for that. Someday, I hope you move back. Okay. Uh, we're going to read from John chapter 12 this morning, and uh, I had them hand out those palms, because I, I want you to have something in your hands as we're talking about Palm Sunday and what happened on Palm Sunday and why those palms are a part of the story anyway. But I'm going to ask that you would read with me just a few verses. This is about that original entry of Jesus into the city of Jerusalem on the day that became known as Palm Sunday. Let's read this together. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. The phrase that I want to highlight is that last one, where the Pharisees say, look how the whole world has gone after Jesus. Let's pray for a minute, and we'll dive into this. Thank you, God, for the way that you work in our lives and for the influences you have already given to each and every one here. There are common features in our pathways, and there are points of divergence. None of us is alike the others in every way. None of our stories are identical with the others in this room. But there's somebody or something that has brought us to the point where we are today, where we're either interested in learning more about Jesus or interested in finding out what is going on inside the life of a friend who has shared some of your story, or we've come to know you and to follow you, and you've touched our lives in profound ways. Each of us needs some measure of your strength, of your wisdom, and of your help. Some of us are more acutely aware of it today, and there are struggles in life and there are difficulties that are surrounding us in which we're calling upon you to, to answer and to help, to provide a pathway through. Some of us look back when we hear these strains of thought, and we can remember times when you have answered our cries, times when you have provided the wisdom needed, times when you have stepped in, and at the very last minute, you provided the help or the hope or the solutions we were seeking. 
My prayer this morning is that you'll draw near to each one. And this morning, as a handful of people are baptized in one in this service and several more in the next service, that you will mark this day in their memories and in their hearts as times, about, as times when they went public with their faith and where they put down a mile marker on this great journey of life, a mile marker that declares to others and to themselves, we found Jesus. We know who we're following. We're going to continue on. So God, we ask that you would use this day to strengthen our faith, to bring greater understanding, and to move us forward. In Jesus' name, amen. John and his friend George were golfing together one Saturday. They'd done this many Saturdays for years. In fact, they were kind of fanatical about their golf game. However, on this particular day, when John returned home at the end of the day, he seemed rather exhausted, and he plopped down in, in a lazy chair. And his wife looked at him and thought, something's off, and she was a little bit concerned, so she asked John, is everything okay? Was there something wrong with your golf game today? He said, no, actually, I, I played the best game that I've played in years today. In fact, uh, it was so good that I was uh, four under after the first three holes, including a hole-in-one on the third hole. And she said, that's great. Then why are you so exhausted? You just seemed down. He said, oh, that was the first three holes. On the fourth hole, George died. And she went, oh, no, that's awful. Uh, is that why you're so exhausted? Were you trying to save George's life? And he said, no, actually, it happened so fast. It was so quick that nobody could do anything for George. But after that, it was all hit the ball and drag George. Hit the ball and drag George. Hit the ball and drag George. I know, it's an awful story, right? <laughs> but, but think about the contrast in, in, in the humor, the sick humor in that story of, of the, the joy and, and the revelry of having had a hole-in-one and being four under and, the, and then the sadness of losing a friend right after that. Today's Palm Sunday, and Palm Sunday is a very unusual holiday. Uh, for our, sec our secular society at large, but also for us in the church. We wave these palms and we celebrate the coming of Jesus, knowing that this week leads into an excruciating memory that we put ourselves through of the betrayal, the arrest, the trial, the abuse of Jesus, and ultimately the physical torture that he went through on the cross. We know why we call it Good Friday, because the, the results and the impact of that date are good for us who put our faith in Jesus. But there's nothing good about that day. And so Palm Sunday is this strange kind of holiday for us where we enter in with joy, but we know the next week has a whole lot of sorrow that we go through. It's not enough to hold palms and remember that Jesus rode on a donkey and to reenact in some way that people laid down their garments on the pathway to Jerusalem before him. We have to know what happened on this day and what was God up to behind the scenes. And how should this impact us today? So here's the, the simple idea that I want to get across this morning. The drama of Jesus' arrival compels us to choose whether we will be disciples or deniers of the king. 
Let me walk you through three events that add to the drama and the power and the emotion of what we feel on Palm Sunday. The first of these events was the news about Lazarus. We talked about Lazarus last week, for those of you who are able to be with us. Uh, John chapter 11, verses 45 and 46 follow up on that story. It says, Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary, Mary is the sister of Lazarus, and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So last Sunday, we focused on Jesus' raising of Lazarus. Jesus had delayed coming after receiving word that Lazarus was sick. And by the time that Jesus entered the small village of Bethany, which is about a mile and a half to two miles away from Jerusalem, he'd been in the tomb for four days. Lazarus was as dead as you can be. Declaring that he is the resurrection and the life, Jesus then called Lazarus from the grave. The scene had filled with the emotion of grief and of loss, and it was profound. Martha, one of Lazarus' sisters, warned Jesus that there was a bad odor. He'd been in the tomb for four days when, when Jesus tells some of the servants to roll away the stone. And then Jesus issues this loud command, Lazarus, come out. And the amazing thing is Lazarus comes out of the tomb, still wrapped from head to toe with these strips of linen, you know, he's either kind of walking, doing the mummy walk, or he's having to bounce his way out of there because he's all tightly bound. And this was the final miraculous sign that Jesus records in the Gospel of John prior to his own death and resurrection. He talked very briefly about how John embeds seven of these miraculous signs in his outline of the Gospel. And each one of these signs is a miraculous event that points to something that is greater than the miracle itself. So each one reveals a little bit more about the identity of Jesus as he was little by little, step by step, unveiling who he was. This particular sign points to Jesus' authority over life and death. If he can raise a man who's been dead and in the tomb for four days, that means that he can conquer sin and he can give us the very thing that he promised, eternal life. Notice, though, there are two reactions to this news about Lazarus. First, we're told that many people who had come to console Mary and Martha ended up believing in Jesus. So this is an amazing deal. They come to a funeral service. They're coming to console their friends, to mark the death of Lazarus, and they walk away having seen Lazarus come out of the tomb alive and all of a sudden, the focus isn't on Lazarus as much as on Jesus, and they put their faith in him. But we're told as well in those same two verses that there were other people who reported Jesus to the Pharisees. We mentioned last week how they were on the lookout for Jesus, and this had happened after Jesus had uh, been teaching in Jerusalem and in the eyes of the Pharisees and some of the religious leaders, he'd gone too far when he talked about being one with the Father and when he talked about being the good shepherd who knows his sheep. And in their minds, only God is the true shepherd of his people. And so they wanted to arrest him. They wanted to do more than arrest him. They'd picked up stones on that day, and they wanted to stone him to death. Here's the second event that adds to the drama of Palm Sunday. The anointing of Mary, or by Mary, we find this in the opening verses of John 12. There it says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. 
Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. And then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Some time had gone by since Jesus had raised Lazarus from that tomb. It's probably a few weeks. We don't know exactly because the text doesn't tell us that. But Jesus had withdrawn from public access after the news of Lazarus had gone all around. He was waiting for his moment to come to Jerusalem. And it was a dangerous place for him to be at. We noticed last week the risk that he took even in coming to Bethany to respond to the sickness of Lazarus. Now news had spread to the city because Bethany was only a mile and a half away And Jesus knew that the religious leaders had given orders to arrest him. Questions were being raised by a number of the people whether Jesus would even show up for this high holiday, for this Passover celebration. When Jesus had arrived at Bethany, there's a dinner in his honor. And Mary begins to anoint his feet with perfume. So John adds to the drama by telling us that this occurred six days before the Passover. Remember that Lazarus and his sisters were dear friends of Jesus, and so this dinner in Jesus' honor wasn't all that unusual, but think of how much more impact there was this time. This is the first time they've seen seen Jesus since the days when he raised Lazarus. Can you imagine sitting at the same table with Lazarus? This is the guy who was dead in the tomb, and now he's having dinner with you. Imagine what's going on in Lazarus' heart as he's seated next to Jesus, thinking, unbelievable, and you're here again. Martha is serving. Lazarus is reclining at the table. The 12 disciples are all there with them. And we wonder, how do you say thanks to the man who's just called your brother from the tomb? Maybe dinner was the best they could offer. You could smell the fine food. You could hear the laughter and the joy of that celebration. And then Mary got an idea. Suddenly, this new, powerful scent begins to fill the room. Mary, the other sister of Lazarus, had taken a pint of a very expensive perfume. It says that it would cost about a year's wages for this kind of a perfume. And she poured it out on Jesus' feet. This was not a commonly done thing. This was extravagant. And the aroma of this perfume would have filled the room, drawing the attention of everybody in the room. Every eye was fixed on what she was doing as she's kneeling there at Jesus' feet, pouring this perfume out over his feet. And then as they're all watching, Mary, probably with long hair, unbinds it and wraps it around her, and down on her knees, she begins to wipe his feet with her hair. Can you imagine the power of this, the unusual aspect? The aroma is is just filling the room, and now they're watching her, probably with tears falling on his feet, wiping his feet with her own hair. This act was personal, worshipful, and intimate. And as you can imagine, again, there are two responses. Jesus receives this act of devotion, and he connected it to his own burial. And he announces that what's going, gone on here will be proclaimed 
for generations to come. The other Gospels actually include a bit more than John does here about this event. And that whenever they talk about Jesus and his death and his burial, they'll tell the story of Mary as well. But Judas, one of the disciples, the one who would betray him just a few days later, began to complain. What an incredible waste. Look at how much money here is being wasted at the feet of Jesus. We could have taken this money and we could have fed all kinds of poor people. This is a year's worth of labor here that's just being poured out on Jesus. Judas begins to argue. John writes that Judas didn't really care about the poor. Judas was the keeper of the money bag, and he was a known thief, and he wanted some of this for himself. He didn't want it to be wasted here in that moment. But what we see with these events is some of the power and the drama that is unfolding around Jesus, along with those two scenes, the the memory of Lazarus and the anointing of Mary, comes the anticipation of Passover, the third of these markers. Verses 12 and 13 lead us into this. It says, Then the next day the, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Now, I seriously doubt that they were saying it like I just read it. Uh, I, I read it kind of calmly with a little bit of emphasis. But this is a crowd of people, and they're calling to Jesus, and they don't have just a little palm leaf. They've got palm branches, and they're waving these at Jesus, and they're calling out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And somebody adds in this thought, Blessed is the King of Israel. Wow. They're kind of dangerous words. John drops that hint, the Passover, a couple of times in this chapter. The Passover celebration marked the peak of the religious year in Jerusalem. This was about the exodus from slavery in Egypt that was being remembered by the people. And every year they would go through the same ceremonies. In fact, Passover was yesterday. And so there were a number of Jewish friends that we have that were celebrating the same event this weekend. It was about the deliverance of Israel from the angel of death being celebrated. It's where Passover lambs were slain and their deliverance was talked about and taught to children. There's a tradition that held that Psalm 118 was known as a psalm of ascent. What's fascinating is that two of these cries from the crowd come from Psalm 118. That word, Hosanna. And the phrase that says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, both come from that psalm. Let me explain to you what that means. As people would make their way from all around Israel to Jerusalem for one of these high holy events, there were a number of psalms that many of them had memorized, and sometimes they would sing them as songs. This particular psalm, Psalm 118, was a song. The, the, the psalm of, a, of ascent literally means that Jerusalem was up on a hill and they would go through a, a small valley at the base of the hill before making their way up to Jerusalem. And so these songs of ascent would be sung as the people are going down and then climbing the hill toward Jerusalem. And all of them brought memories of some of the great events and the great celebrations in the city. 
Memorizing and singing this psalm had prepared the people for this day. So in Psalm 118, verse 25, there's this phrase that reads in English, Lord, save us. In Hebrew, it's the term hoshianu, from which that term has been anglicized in our English Bibles to read hosanna. There are some of the Hebrew scholars that argue that what it literally means is save us now, not just save us, but do something now. It's a term that wasn't an everyday greeting. It was the cry of people to a conquering hero. And then verse 26 follows right after that. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hearing about the raising of Lazarus, the crowd saw Jesus as a prophetic figure. The anticipation was heightened even more as Jesus begins to ride in on a donkey, fulfilling another prophecy from the minor prophet Zechariah chapter 9. And then in verse 27, it says, With bows in hand, join in the festal celebration. The bows they waved toward Jesus came from palm branches. Palm branches had been cut as part of the Passover celebration for many years. And people would cut these branches and wave them as they would sing these psalms of ascent as they're preparing for the celebration that would come. Researchers and historians tell us that there are about 2,780 different varieties of palm trees that grow somewhere on this planet. The kind of palm tree that grew most widely in that area of Israel near Jerusalem was known as a date palm. So it's where they got dates that they would eat. Nazarene pastor Ernie Arnold writes, Quote, the date palm provided food, shelter, and comfort. It was argued that it took only one date palm tree to meet all the necessary needs of a Jewish man, woman, boy, or girl. The date palm was considered as the queen of all trees. And again, as with the other two events that lead up to this day, there were two responses. The crowd that knew about the raising of Lazarus continued to spread the word of Jesus. That's the first response. But the Pharisees grumbled. Luke records that they said, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Here the complaint that John includes in his gospel is, Look how the whole world has gone after him. And in that moment they see Jesus as the competition. Jesus as the enemy. I think the Pharisees were saying something prophetic without realizing it. That the whole world would continue to turn toward Jesus. Palm Sunday is one of these moments when the whole world begins to turn its focus toward Jesus every year. And so we sing praises and we wave palms, even though we know that the sadness of Friday is coming. And all of this points to something that the Bible declares will yet be realized in the future, when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And so in their own confused way, the Pharisees point us toward the day when the whole world turns toward Jesus. Now, here's what we're seeing so far. The drama of Jesus' arrival compels us to choose, and we must choose whether we will be disciples or whether we will be deniers of the king. And it's obvious that John writes in a way that he wants us to join those who are identified as disciples. Okay, so how do we make the most of Palm Sunday? I have two thoughts to wrap this up. The first is with the desire to see Jesus. It's very interesting, if we were to read on a couple of verses later, right after the section that we read together, John 12, 20 and 21 include these thoughts. 
Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. What's going on? Here in the midst of all of these Jewish people who were streaming to the city, we find some outsiders. The term Greeks used in the New Testament sometimes refers to people who are from Greece, but more often uh, Greeks were those who were not Jews. Greeks are everybody else, the great unwashed, so to speak. Early in John's gospel, when two of John the Baptist's disciples began to follow Jesus, they asked a similar question. What do you seek? And, and here's the reality. There are all kinds of people who are tired of religion, but they want to see Jesus. They are seeking after Jesus. Whatever you do, seek Jesus. Desire more of Jesus. Put yourself in a place where you find Jesus. Put yourself in a place continually where you hear from Jesus. If we ever stop leading people to focus on Jesus, get out of here and go somewhere else where they do. Does that make sense? Because we stop being a church that's on mission with Jesus at the moment that we stop talking about him and we make it all about the church and all about everything else. It's all about Jesus. Does that make sense? And our primary business as a church is to present Jesus to a world that is thirsty for truth, thirsty for authenticity, thirsty for God. And Jesus leads us to God. Here's the second way we make the most of Palm Sunday. Embrace the mission of Jesus. Carry on just a few verses further and then we'll stop. Verse 23 says, Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, and anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. This is Jesus' response to those Greek people who wanted to see him. In effect, he was saying, if you want to see me, embrace my mission, and you'll see me at work in this world. And Jesus was acknowledging that he came to offer his earthly life in order to give us an eternal life. So he calls us to embrace that mission. Embracing his mission changes our lives. It changes our plans. He calls us to serve and to follow him, knowing that God the Father honors those who serve Jesus. This morning, we're going to do something that marks that. We have nine people today who are going to be baptized one is a young, lovely young lady who will be baptized in this service, and then eight more who attend the 11 o'clock service will follow in the next hour. When we do this, we are practicing what we call believer's baptism. A believer's baptism is a public act of following Jesus. It illustrates a number of things, first of all to the individual being baptized, but then to all of us who, who witness this event whenever we see it. It tells us that Jesus washes away our sins. That's the first thing. The second picture is it, it kind of images our participation in the death and burial 
and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, so to speak, going under the water uh, illustrates that idea of dying to the old nature, to the selfish way of life, and being raised up into the newness of life. And the third thing that it pictures is our participation in the new life that Jesus came to give those who trust him. So here's the thought. The drama of Jesus' arrival compels us to choose whether we will be disciples or whether we will be deniers of the king. There's some responses that seem quite normal for any of us who are thinking through this particular message and the events of Palm Sunday. Here's the first thought down on the bottom of your page. I want to see Jesus. If you've been skeptical or you've been asking questions or maybe you haven't figured out if you really do believe in Jesus, let me ask you this. Do you want to see Jesus? Do you want to know Jesus? That's the place to start. And if that's where you are not right now, either circle that or check that box and star that for yourself. That's a good place to be, acknowledging that you're in the same place as, as these people that were written about just after Mary had anointed Jesus and Lazarus had been raised from the dead. They wanted to see Jesus. Here's a second possible response. I'm choosing to embrace the mission of Jesus. Maybe you've already decided that you are a Jesus follower, but to embrace his mission means to go far beyond the intellectual agreement that you've already come to and saying, I want to be in, on board. I want to be a part of his mission in the world. And if that's where you're at, that's where he is leading you, check that, star that, circle that, do something. Talk to one of our pastors or one of the leaders around here this morning and say, how do I get involved in some way in the mission of Jesus in the world? And here's the next possible thought. You're going to watch a courageous young 11-year-old lady get baptized, knowing she's the only one this morning, but maybe her life will have an impact on yours. And maybe the box that you need to check is the next time that we do this, next time we offer baptism, I want to be baptized. I want to go public with my faith because that's what this is all about. Does that make sense? All right. Sarah, why don't you come on up here?